0: that battle continues all the time. And when I saw my books being removed from shelves, the books of my friends and my colleagues and, and my mentors being removed from shelves, I knew that I wanted to do something that would ensure that those stories would remain accessible for as long as possible.
1: I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, I sit down with award-winning middle-grade and young adult author Leah Johnson to talk about writing authentic stories for kids, the harmful effects of the rise of book banning in America, and the founding of Loudmouth Books, her band titles bookstore, and the heart of her hometown. Stay with us. This season, I'm doing something a little different to mix up our format. I'll still share stories from past-facing projects to shine a light on specific topics and issues. But also, I'll sit down for long-form interviews with business executives, best-selling authors, filmmakers, and other artists who are using their platforms to make the world a more understanding and empathetic place, asking each of them the same question. How do we create a more empathetic world in a time when listening has decreased and each person's message is competing with millions of others? Today's guest is Leah Johnson, a middle grade and young adult author who rose to stardom with the release of You Should See Me in a Crown that went on to be named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 best young adult books ever written and received awards and accolades from the American Library Association and the Indiana Authors Awards. Much like You Should See Me in a Crown, Leah's follow-up titles, Rise to the Sun and Ellie Engel Saves Herself, tell the stories of young Black and queer protagonists. Like many Black and queer authors, Leah's books have come under scrutiny and have been banned and pulled from shelves. In 2023, Leah took back that power and opened Loudmouth Books, a banned books bookstore in the heart of Indianapolis. Leah Johnson, award-winning author, bookseller, and all-around amazing human. Thank you for joining me on The Facing Project.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited.
1: I am too. And I actually want to start... um, There's a lot I want to cover, actually, today uh, in our conversation. But first, I want to say it's really fantastic to sit down with another Hoosier. And for listeners who are not from Indiana... That's what we call ourselves here. It's not some weird phrase that I'm calling Leah uh, or that Leah's calling me. That's what we call ourselves here in Indiana. But also I love that I get to sit down with another Hoosier author and writer. Indiana actually has produced so many authors and writers and filmmakers and creatives. What do you think it is about Indiana?
0: I, I, I would hate to be trite and use that Vonnegut quote where he's like, it doesn't matter where you go, there's always a Hoosier doing something amazing or whatever it was he said but i do think there is a sense of uh of self-reliance and self-creation here that is unique to indiana i mean at one point we were the center of blue collar jobs in the united states we had more factories per capita than any other state and i do think that there is something woven into the thread of our culture here about um, telling stories, but also creating meaning and working really hard. And I think all those things sort of tie together naturally in what it means to be a storyteller. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a lot of it. I know Mm -hmm. for me, there are so few representations of life as a Hoosier in literature growing up, aside from John Green. And John Green is not from Indiana originally, but he has, of course, made this his home and and um written pretty extensively about it. But aside from John Green, I very rarely saw YA, which is my my primary genre, that reflected the really particular experience of growing up in Indianapolis which is rural adjacent you know there's a Mm -hmm. lot of um agriculture around here but like I'm from the city but I'm also like a mile away from dozens of cornfields and so um part of what I'm trying to do always in my work is is create images that maybe have not been created yet or have not had the opportunity to be platformed in the way that my work is platformed now. And that's, and that is, that's all because of being from Indiana.
1: Mm -hmm. I sometimes wonder too, because we have so many months of gray weather. I know, like, I write year round, but I find that I write more in the winter time because I don't want to be outside, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm inside working on stuff and thinking creatively and all that. Sometimes I'm like, is it also because of our weather that keeps keeps us going in that creative way i I don't know
0: could be could be i mean so before after i graduated from college i went to new york for grad school and i lived there for a while and i will say i was never i was never at home in New York. Like it didn't matter what time of year it was, it didn't matter what time of day it was, I was out. I was in these streets. I was mm-hmm. either working or I was writing at a coffee shop or I was going to an event or I was hanging out with friends or whatever. And so I do think being back here, I have become much more reclusive. I do spend mm-hmm. a lot more time indoors, a lot more time in solitude. And so... That does give that does give a lot of space to to writing. So you might be onto to something, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, I think it's all those things that you talked about and more. Talking about college, so I want to go way, way back, and you were raised on the west side of Indianapolis, and you were editor-in-chief of your high school newspaper, and you went on to receive your BA from IU Bloomington, and then you left the state for a while, and you did your MFA at Sarah Lawrence College, uh, and you lived in New York, as you said, uh, moved to New York for a while, but while you were in college, you got the opportunity to intern with the Wall Street Journal and a couple of different NPR affiliate stations on the surface, if people knew nothing else about you, right, they might think that doesn't seem like a pathway to becoming a young adult or middle grade author. Set the record straight for me. Did you always know you wanted to write for children and young adults? Or when did you decide that was the best outlet to tell your stories?
0: Yeah, I I always knew that I wanted to tell stories full stop. It didn't matter to me, the medium didn't matter the avenue. I knew that I wanted to tell stories, but. Growing up, it wasn't like now where we have seen a huge emergence in the past, uh, you know, five, 10 years of more diverse literature. When I was in elementary school and middle school, the representations I got in fiction were not of queer black girls from Indiana. Mm -hmm. They were of wealthy white girls from the East Coast who were falling in love and having these really incredible, life-changing, life-altering narratives. And so I knew that somebody's job was writing books, but I did not imagine that it was a job for somebody like me. And so I was raised in relative poverty. And so my objective from a really young age was like, I never want to be broke again. And so whatever I have to do to do that, to take care of myself and take care of my family, that's what I'm going to do. And so I knew that they were telling stories on the news every night when I turned on TV. And so I decided that journalism was going to be how I was going to be how I, I accomplished, you know, telling stories, but also making enough money to eat. Mm -hmm. And I stayed on that path for a long time. I mean, it's not, it's not all that different really now that I I'm on the other side of it, but really I just learned how to tell a good story. I learned how to tell a tight story. I learned how to figure out what the narrative, the heart of the narrative actually is and who the subject is. And I learned how to chase the threads that other people maybe are ignoring. And that curiosity and that willingness to interrogate my own interests and biases, I think, fed directly into the work that I started doing when i decided i was going to write and mm-hmm. so i went to new york my the summer before my senior year of college for a fellowship with the city university of new york journalism school and through that fellowship we like took a class at the j school and then also were doing these internships and it was all like young people of color from across the country and i ended up at the at the Journal. And that was wonderful. That was a really cool experience, like shockingly for a young queer black person like that actually was a really cool environment for me. Mm -hmm. I know that people may not think that uh, knowing that I was walking into the Fox News building every day. Um, But. That summer, as a part of the fellowship, they would send us out on these assignments for the J school and. Oh, God, when I tell you, the (laughs) assignments that I was doing that summer made me want to, like, I I wanted to give it up. I said, you know what, forget it. If this is what the rest of my career is going to look like, I have no interest in this. And also, you know, it didn't help that that was also in the era of, um, of the emergence of Black Lives Matter as a real cultural force. And so oftentimes being one of the only Black people in a newsroom or um, in a news gathering space, the stories of talking about the brutalization of Black folks and also about police brutality and uh, systemic racism was falling to me. And I felt so exhausted and disheartened by that line of work Mm -hmm. that I didn't feel like I had the capacity to do it for the next 40 years of my career Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just threw a Hail Mary pass my first semester of my senior year of college and was like, if I'm not going to do this, I got to do something. And I told my mom that I wanted to go back to my roots, which was telling stories in fiction. Mm-hmm. And she's like,
1: OK, girl, <laughs> if that's what you to do, you better do it better than anybody mm-hmm. else. And I said, yeah. you
0: don't have to tell me twice. And so um that's when I went and got my, my MFA. And so in some ways, uh, writing fiction was an escape hatch. I was trying to, I was trying to find a way to reconnect to this thing that I had once loved, but had sort of fallen out of love with because of circumstance and time and subject. Um, and I got there and I realized that like a lot of people who are in MFA programs are not particularly interested in the, the life of a working writer, like I think a lot of people who go to MFAs are just like strictly there for the craft. Mm-hmm. And I think that is beautiful, but that is not me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn not only how to write a book, but I wanted to learn how to publish a book. I wanted to learn how to write professionally. I wanted to learn how to make enough money to sustain myself. And um, luckily, that's that's what happened,
1: yeah. When you wrote your first book, You Should See Me in a Crown, you set it in Indiana. So going back to living in Indiana now and like, what is it about Indiana creating creatives? Did you know when you set out, when you were drafting that book? I don't know if you're a plotter or a pantser or how, what's your writing process? Are you a plotter or a pantser? Well,
0: I was a pantser when I wrote You Should See Me in a Crown, and i that was a huge mistake. It was a huge, huge mistake. I yeah. realized immediately that was a bad idea. I had to rewrite that book entirely from scratch three times before I got to a workable draft. And now, now I'm a plotter because I, yeah. I was like, I can't keep doing that. I don't have enough time to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. For people who may not know what that is. So plotter is when people do like an outline and they kind of know going in, this is going to happen here. Here's going to be the arc, all of that. And of course that changes a little bit as you get into it. But pantsers, you're really, you may have some of that in your mind, but you're really writing it from where you are in that day and how you're feeling and and going through and, and all of that. So for people who don't totally get that. But did you know when you were pantsing, you should see me in a crown that it would be Indiana? Was that... The setting right from the start. Yeah, it totally was. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, look, when I wrote You Should See Me in a Crown, for context, I started writing that book in 2018. And in 2018, CCBC, which is like a a, a think tank sort of for children's literature, released a study that had calculated all of the traditionally published books in the three years prior to 2018. Mm -hmm. And of every traditionally published book, there were 20 that had a black girl as a main character. And of those 20, there was one that had a black queer girl as a main character. That's the landscape that I was writing into at that time. And so I did not think that I was going to be able to do this forever. I hoped I was working for it and I was praying for it and I was like hustling for it. But there was no guarantee that the industry would be able to sustain a career Like mine, And so um, when I started writing You Should See Me in a Crown, I wanted to throw everything at the wall and just see what stuck. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I never got to do this again, I wanted to make sure I hit all my beats. I wanted the happy ending. I wanted the joyous joyous narrative that comes without trauma. I wanted um, to set the book in Indiana. I wanted to write about an anxious Black girl who's growing up in poverty. I wanted to write about what it means to feel like you have all these pressures on you, but you're 17 and so you shouldn't have to shoulder those burdens on your own. And um luckily all those things stayed through to the end. So it mm-hmm. was uh it didn't end up being like a a even a risky endeavor to set it in Indiana. My editor, who's also Midwestern black woman, was like, Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Let's put it in a, a fictional town and you can go go wild, do whatever you want.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You discovered a little bit about yourself in that writing process. Tell me more about that, that realization that you had as you were writing.
0: Yeah, I, you know, so You Should See Me in a Crown is a book about a girl named Liz Lighty who's growing up in a small and small-minded town in Indiana, and she's a wallflower, and all she wants to do is get a scholarship to go to college and get out of her town forever, until her scholarship for college falls through and she has to run for prom queen for the money that's associated with the crown. And then she falls in love with her competition for queen as she's going through this competition. And so when I was working on the book, I I knew that I was queer, but I, I couldn't put a name to it. And I was scared to put language to it and didn't think that there was a possible future for somebody like me where I got to be happy and all of the things that I am and also like be in love. And, and you know, I, I did not envision that there was a story like the ones that I had read for somebody like me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, can you hear my dogs barking in the background? No. <laughs> okay. I, oh my yeah. gosh. They are freaking out downstairs. My no, I goodness. actually,
1: I can't. Yeah.
0: Oh, good. Um, And so what I wanted to do with You Should See Me in a Crown was write an ending into existence. If I could imagine it in fiction, then maybe I could imagine it in real life. And so it was over the course of working on the book that I felt empowered to sort of stand in my identities. And it wasn't until the book got announced publicly, um, Mm -hmm. which you know how this goes. You you sell the book and then it's just you and the book for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And then at some point the book will get announced and everybody will know about it. And so it won't really belong just to you anymore. Mm -hmm. And so when the book got announced um, in Publishers Weekly, I was living in New York and my mom called me the night that it got announced and she was so happy and excited. And I wasn't out to my mom at the time. And she was like, I'm gonna fly to New York and we're gonna celebrate. Overnight, my mom books a flight. She's in New York the next day. I get off work, me and my mom go see The Prom on Broadway queer in Indiana. In Indiana yeah. high school uh musical and um my mom's just having the time of her life she's bragging to everybody she's telling them my daughter is is she's an author she's gonna have this book coming out my daughter is an ally the book is about a queer girl but she's straight but the book is <laughs> and like she was just like <laughs> no. and i was just sitting there watching this musical and i was crying like it's actually a really happy show, you know, ultimately, but I was just crying the entire way because I was like, how in the world am I going to put this book out, talk to young people, like talk to reporters presumably, talk to other authors and and never tell the truth of why I wrote the book. And so that night I came out to my mom, at the dallas barbecue in times square um and i don't know when that would have happened if not for uh the the urgency that you should see me in a crown sort of provided mm-hmm.
1: so your book's coming out and you came out <laughs> too how how did those around you react when you told them like hey this story isn't really my story the story of liz and you should see me in a crown right but but I am also a part of the story. How did people react to that?
0: You know, I'm going to tell you the truth. My mom is the only person I've ever come out to. Everybody else, I let them find out. Yeah. <laughs> I let them find out on their own. I think, you know, too, part of it is that when I was, I was away from, you know, I was away from everybody that I'd grown up with and I was in a completely new environment. And so I could be whoever I wanted to be in the city because there was no preconceived notion about who I am. Mm-hmm. Or who I was, and so I was just I was just out like i never I never came out to the people that I was in school with or worked with. I just entered that space and was queer in that space, and that was all they knew of me. um, and so the reactions were in general, like, oh, yeah, of course, this book is is, you know, is tied to Leah's life in all these ways. um, but. I was fortunate enough that, you know, talking to my mom about it, um, she was, she was so heartbroken that I had felt like I couldn't tell her. And that was like, that was the only, that was the only sadness that was attached to it. The rest of it was like, Mm -hmm. she was full speed ahead. She was like quick, quickly, quickly was like, all right, girl, we're, Mm -hmm. we're going for it. I'm, I'm in it now. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I find so many outlets, uh, print, media, when we are authors who have quote unquote marginalized identities, I don't always love that word, but that's the word that people throw out, right? They often will lead like queer author or black author, queer black author, Leah Johnson. Mm -mm. When that first started happening, when your book came out, did you feel, did that add more pressure to the debut?
0: Yeah, you know, I carried a lot of anxiety in the run up to publication because I was very aware of the fact that publishing is risk averse. So if they if they take on a book that they believe is risky for whatever reason, and it underperforms, then they're not going to do it again or Mm -hmm. they do it again. And it's going to be even harder for the next person to um, get any sort of traction or support. And so my fear, you know, of course I had, I had the selfish fears of like, Oh man, what if I flop? Like what if I can't make a career out of this? What if nobody ever wants to hear about Leah Johnson again? Um, But the other fear was that if this book doesn't do well, then the door closes behind me. And who knows when we're going to get the, another shot for somebody to have a commercially viable queer black girl y a novel mm-hmm. um, at Scholastic in particular. And that was something I carried with me for a long time. I also am just like, a really community oriented. And so, um, my politics are rooted in lifting as I climb, And Mm I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to lift anybody with me because I was going to be right there on the ground.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it came out and it was a runaway success. In fact, Time Magazine named it one of the 100 best young adult novels to ever be written. So congratulations (laughs) on that, right? (laughs) That's, that's, yeah, that's... (laughs) That's chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) But also the American Library Association um, gave it a Stonewall Book Award or Honor Book. And you also won the Indiana Authors Award for Young Adult Literature. When you were in grad school, though, and when you signed with your agent, you had written an essay in Electric Lit about the lack of diversity in YA. And you titled it, How Young Adult Literature Taught Me How to Love Like a White Girl. I love that title, by the way. Take me back to writing that essay.
0: Yeah i i was really um, I was really trying to find my voice as a writer, but also just somebody who exists in the world. Like I was trying to find alternate ways of, of articulating my values after leaving journalism and. I got to grad school and I was really fortunate to take a class with, um, mind you, she was not my professor. She was just another student, but um, she was so instructive to me in this time. Her name is Julia Sun and Shine. And I just thought she was so brilliant. And she was a freelance writer and she was r- working for all these different publications and she was freelance editing for these big magazines. And, I was so inspired by her work that I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to start writing essays. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why not? And so um, Julia sat me down and was like, all right, if you want to do this, here's how you pitch. Here's how you format a personal essay. Here's how you frame it. Here's what the arc should look like. And after talking to her, I was like, I know know exactly what it is I want to talk about. And so I wrote a draft of uh how to love like a white girl and submitted it to electric lit through submittable when i think about this now i'm like that is so (laughs) wild that i ran i randomly submitted this essay in submittable which anybody who's ever used submittable Mm
1: -hmm. you
0: know it is a hellscape
1: it's clunky it is a disaster (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah
0: and so i got a so the essay got picked up and it got a it uh, it got published and I just, it really opened every door. It was like the beginning of everything, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And so after I published that essay, um, it, it performed certainly better than I expected it to. I was like, all right, I'm going to put this out. I'm going to make my little 50 bucks. Mind you, back in the day, Electric Lit was paying $50 <laughs> for an essay. And I was like, and that'll be it and it came out and then that same day i got emails from editors and from agents and um that was how that was how i got my my first agent
1: mhm what was it like when you opened your inbox and you saw all of the people wanting to know more about you and also wanting to talk to you about representation were you did you shut it down and thought, I'm going to come back to this later? Is this real life? Or did you dive right in to that?
0: I dove right in. I dove right in because I I was like, you never know if you're going to get another shot. I have approached everything in my career with a sense of, of breathless urgency where mm-hmm. it's like, if I don't do this now, it may never get done. If I don't take this opportunity today, I may never get it again. And sometimes it hasn't paid off for me, but most of the time it has. And this was one of those times where it did. And so I was at my job as an assistant. Uh, I had a graduate assistantship in the office of diversity and ran to my boss. I was like, Natalie, what am I supposed to do? Natalie immediately calls her friend who is in the writing program at the undergrad writing program at Sarah Lawrence. Um, So she was like, can you talk Leah through this? And then I I got on the phone with one of my professors and he was like, he was like at his daughter's ballet recital or something. And he like took the, took the call. It <laughs> was like, Leah, don't <laughs> panic. This is fine. This is what you do. Um, And so I, I had a lot of feedback instantly. And uh, then I ended up getting representation after that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome that you had options. So many options of people who were interested in your work. Building off of that essay and that essay title, and You Should See Me in a Crown coming out, I feel like publishing, especially young adult, has diversified greatly in the last... Well, it depends on how you define diversity, right? So like right. in the last 10 years, yeah, it started in that trajectory, but in the last I'd say 5 to 6 years, it feels it feels like there are more queer authors writing um BIPOC and queer main characters um with storylines that aren't steeped in tragedy, right? Like we're writing our own stories. It's not painting us as these people who we aren't or just these one-dimensional characters. But it really is allowing space for us to tell our stories about adventure and superheroes and first loves and friendships and proms, all these things. And the diversifying of literature, I think, has been important in two ways. So one, I think it allows young adults, obviously, to see themselves in stories. And then also it increases empathy and understanding. But in some ways, it's also come at a great cost to us who are writing these stories. Books are being banned in high schools and even public libraries at alarming rates. And book bans in the U.S. aren't necessarily new, right? We see cycles of this happening, but this time it feels different, or at least to me it does. And I don't know how you feel, but why do you think people are so afraid of these stories?
0: So I have a lot of answers to this, but one, I'm I'm going to echo... Um, Kathleen Glasgow's sentiment from your interview with her, which I, I listened to. Um, and that's that book banning isn't about a removal of stories. It's about a removal of queer people from public life. If this was just about just about, I'm doing air quotes around just, but um if this was just about books, then this wouldn't feel as urgent or as terrifying. But we know that fascism, a rise in fascism is always tied to a rise in violent ideology. And that ideology is disseminated in a myriad of ways. But one of those ways is by suppressing the voices of people who have perspectives that are different than those in positions of power. Mm -hmm. And so I think book bans are cyclical. I think that they are always tied to much larger and much more violent political movements. Um, But I also think that they are not, this moment is not unique. It feels terrifying and pressing to me, but this is not the first time we've we've come to the table and had to battle this particular giant and it it certainly Mm -hmm. won't be the last so yeah i think uh we saw a tide turn in 2016 Mm -hmm. and there's no there's no reversing that you know what we saw the values that that we saw endorsed in that election and in the subsequent years are not, they didn't disappear because we elected a Democrat to the presidency a few years later. Um, In fact, they went underground and had to recalibrate and re-strategize and have emerged with these little pockets of conservatism and all these different ways across the country. And one of the ways that it's coming up now is with book bans, because if you can control the Mm -hmm. images of who is and is not socially acceptable, who does and does not deserve a seat at the table, whose stories are inappropriate just by virtue of having uh queer people or black people or you know, any number of identities at the center, then you can also begin to double down on this idea that these people do not deserve the same measure of rights and privileges as everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um. So all that to say, is this new? No, absolutely not. Does this feel scarier to me now than it would have, Ten years ago, absolutely mm-hmm. because I've seen what's I've seen what Americans are capable of, and I've seen what uh, conservatives are capable of. and I think if we don't match the ire mm-hmm. and the urgency that's coming from them, we are going to lose. Mm-hmm. and losing this battle isn't just losing you know, comics. ground politically, mm-hmm. but it's it's going to result in a loss of life. And we've already seen that. We mm-hmm. know that when kids have uh, reduced access to the stories that affirm their experiences, they're much more likely to self-harm mm-hmm. or um, much more likely to suffer from depression or anxiety. And so the consequences of book banning are a real and present threat. And that to me is something that can't be taken lightly.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you feel like in the past, so there are a couple of things swimming in my mind. One is I think back to like when Judy Bloom was so controversial. And now, I was just like... <laughs> thinking about Judy Bloom.
0: I was just thinking about
1: her. And I love Judy Bloom. I love the the Judy Bloom documentary or movie that came out, like, you know, yeah. recently. It's so good. But I'm thinking too about in some ways her books took on topics and were real life of teens, right? Things that teens do, they have relationships. They also have sex sometimes, right? They
0: menstruate. (laughs) They
1: menstruate. There are all these things that she covered that at the time people painted as really taboo. But now looking back, they're not really that taboo of subjects. And really what young adult authors are doing now are building off of that, but showing other identities that are real identities that exist in people, right? Do you think this will pass too? Like it did pass... Um, Eventually, I mean, book banning has gone on forever, but it feels like it's gone in these cycles of where we go years where we're seeing crazy, right, like things coming from this. And then we have a little bit where we have successes and then it goes back to people being worried and creating these narratives that are just not true about books, especially now when queer and, and BIPOC authors are putting out titles about their lived experiences and people are just loosely calling them pornography and different things that just are absolutely not true, right? Do you feel like this moment in time will eventually pass or do you feel like we're ramping up?
0: Yeah, I think that's um that's the juice and the squeeze, isn't it? That's the whole mm. that's the whole ball game. I Listen, realistically, I think that this is a season and it will pass. I mm. think um what we're seeing now in these every year steadily increasing numbers of book bans. I do think that that is going to level out at some point. But again, it's not really the book bans that are the problem. It's the this is a symptom mm-hmm. and you know we can get rid of the symptom but the the sickness remains Mm -hmm. and so i think even after this levels out even after moms for liberty um decides that they're going to take up another cause um the damage that's been done by this movement is going to take years and years to undo Mm -hmm. um and that that is real that is concerning to me
1: and the stats do show that it points toward cost of children's lives right right? as you talked about earlier it's it really is about denying kids and teenagers access to the materials that they need to see themselves in stories right and And it's such
0: an absurd argument this idea that like that queer books are are somehow uh propagandizing and 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 indoctrinating your children (laughs) I read thousands and I do mean thousands of books about straight white girls over the course of my life. Did same. I become a straight white girl? No. In fact, I just got gayer. And so if it worked like that, then then I wouldn't be here writing these books to begin with.
1: Same. I yeah, same. And I'm I'm not I did not become a straight white girl either or any <laughs> of right, those things. So um I am curious to know in indiana i mean this is all across the country but in indiana and and most recently in in hamilton county right the library there moms for liberty has taken over the narrative in many ways or they've tried have you gotten the opportunity to sit across from anyone who's made these decisions about books banned your own book um if you have what did you say or if you were given that opportunity what would you say
0: Oh no. Um yeah, no. I my books have always been banned um or challenged quietly. I there's not you know, I think I think sometimes there is this misconception that when your book gets banned or challenged you're like notified about it so that you can like fight against it or your team can put up some sort of, you know, defense or whatever. But what's really insidious about book bans and challenges is that most of the time it's just done in secret it's done mm-hmm. under the cover of darkness not everybody has google alerts on their name so they don't know when their book is being brought up at a board meeting um or uh you know they don't know until it's already on the pen america banned books list for the year mm-hmm. um and so yeah i i've never been um been able to talk to somebody who uh, wants my books banned um but i have had a number of parents um tweet at me and and talk about my books and say that it's it's disgusting it's propaganda it's it's grooming it shouldn't be allowed in schools um it's been a while. I don't I don't check my emails anymore. Um mm-hmm. I now have an assistant who can do this, but um I used to get the nastiest emails from people who had read the book or had had bought the book but didn't realize that it was queer, which I don't understand. It says it right on the back, but whatever. Yeah. Um and and they reprimanded me for trying to sneak uh queer content into their their children's brains. I it just I, I have I have encountered a lot of those sorts of um, those sorts of folks, but I'd never respond directly to them because mm-hmm. if you were interested in engaging in a good faith conversation, your introduction to me would not be, "Hey, I hate queer people, and I think you're a pedophile." You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) if you really wanted to talk about what it is I'm doing in the work and why you feel the way you feel, you would enter into it uh, much, much differently. So, um, yeah, I think, and I think it's for the best. I'm not in the business anymore. I think at one point maybe I was, but I'm certainly not in the business anymore of, of demanding that people respect me or insisting that people see my humanity Mm -hmm. i I don't have to appeal to you to deserve to exist Mm -hmm. like i deserve to exist just because i'm a human being who exists on this planet and is in a body and moves through the world um but i think for a long time i was under the i was under this i had fallen into the trap that i think so many of us fall into which is that like if I can just be respectable, mm-hmm. i I will earn their respect. If I can just um appeal to their logic and their their um their heart, their um, reason, i can I can get them to see what I'm trying to get them to see. You can never be quiet enough or respectable enough for people who benefit from your silence and your erasure. Mm-hmm. So write the thing you're going to write. Double down. Be as queer as you can be. Be blacker than black, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Tell the story because you're you're not going to be able to appeal to them by being gentle and kind and and smarter than them. That's that that isn't a strategy that really works. So mm-hmm. do the work and do it without fear or shame Mm -hmm. that's that's my that's my position now
1: yeah and and for aspiring authors and young adult writers that's the same advice too right about sometimes we get called up in especially if it's not your first book so people who are writing their first book maybe they're blissfully unaware in some ways (laughs) about uh, how the public interacts, right, with us when our books come out. But for somebody who maybe is seeing this play out and they're not seeing all the background that's happening, right, these emails that are coming in, what advice would you have for somebody who's maybe afraid to write their story are right into that space that represents them, that somebody else needs to see themselves in that story. But they're scared because of all the things we just talked about. What advice would you have for aspiring writers?
0: This is the coolest job in the world. And I, I genuinely mean that. And I have many jobs. I'm always working. And I have to say with full certainty that being a writer is the coolest job I've ever had. The... The angry emails and the the tweets and the DMs pale in comparison to the number of queer kids that I have met who have told me that they came out to their parents because they read my book, or the emails that I get from sixth graders who have read uh, my middle grade. I don't even I didn't even know sixth graders knew how to use email. The number of emails I get from sixth graders who are like. Ellie is just like me. I never knew that other people like me were out there. Thank you for writing this book. Those are the stories that keep you going. That's mm-hmm. the that's the narrative that you should cling to because mm-hmm. the work that we do is so much more important than the naysayers' opinions of you. Yeah. And so it is it is intimidating work that is for certain, but don't be intimidated by the people who don't want you to do it. Be intimidated by the bigness of the impact it's going to have when it goes out in the world. Everybody's going to write a book that is somebody's favorite book, mm-hmm. whether whether that's like, whether it's Time's favorite book or whatever, or whether it's Cosmo's favorite book or whatever, I, I don't know I, and i think that's less important than the fact that there's going to be an eighth grader out there who's going to stumble across your book in a library one day and it's going to change their life the way that miseducation of cameron post changed mine mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's worth showing up for even when you're scared
1: hmm i love young adults i i write memoir but i also write young adult too and i find that young adult is one of my favorite categories And I would argue, as we just talked about, some of the most urgent stories are young adult literature. And I think that's because, right, teens are figuring themselves out. They're figuring out who Mm -hmm. they are. Sometimes they feel alone and they need these stories. Beyond that, what is it about young adult that makes it feel so magical and age spanning? Because, you know, it's not just teens reading young adult. It's also, I mean, I, I read young adult, you read and write young adult too. Like, what do you think it is about young adult?
0: Well, I I also, my primary audience, like I write for and about children, but my primary audience is adults, like Mm -hmm. more adults by YA than any other group, which is fascinating to me and something that we can talk about on a different podcast. But um, I think for me, what is so enticing about YA, what's so exciting about writing it is that I get to go back to these big experiences over and over again I get to experience the magic of firsts all the time Mm -hmm. I and like so many other queer people did not get to experience my firsts when I was in high school because I wasn't out and I wasn't I wasn't sure about my identity and so I didn't get to go to with another girl and I didn't get to have my my first kiss at a concert like Liz and Mac do. And I didn't get to, you know, hold hands walking down the the hallway at school. And part of what I think is so important about YA is that it is healing for a lot of us who maybe didn't get to experience those things, but it also is permission giving and that's an incredible incredible opportunity to sit down at the page mm-hmm. and know that a frivolous food fight scene in a cafeteria is going to give some kids somewhere permission to be a little more playful to let loose to take more risks mm-hmm. and that's fun work. That is really fun work. Do I like drafting? No. Do I like revising? No. Do I like <laughs> literally any part of the writing process?
1: <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> but I like being able to put these books out in the world and uh see how they see how they live in the hearts of of the people that I write for. And so yeah, there's there's just a real magic about first experiences that is like it never gets old to me.
1: Yeah. And and for other adults, too, probably reading that, too, who maybe didn't get to have some of those first experiences, they're reading it now as adults, and they're maybe picturing themselves in that moment as if they were teens. Um, So I think that's kind of a a magic around it, too, like you were saying. One thing that I think our listeners may not know is that once you do have a successful book, like you did with You Should See Me in a Crown, um, there's a demand for others. So the whole process we just talked about, like, do we like doing this? Do we like doing that? Right. How did writing your other books differ from You Should See Me in a Crown?
0: Oh my goodness. That's a great question. Well, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you that with You Should See Me in a Crown, I wanted the book to do really well, but I had low expectations and nobody else was expecting anything of me. There were no readers that I knew were going to be waiting for another book. I, I hadn't I didn't have a contract for another book really, um, at the time of writing it, I did before the book came out, but, um, so it was really just me and the page. I was just telling a story that I, I was excited about and that, um, felt true to me. Mm -hmm. And that changes with every book because this isn't just a hobby anymore. It's not just something I do because I love it. And because it's fun, it's now a thing that I do because it pays my mortgage. Mm -hmm. And, um, that changes the nature of the work a little bit. The intentions are the same, but the the energy that I have to invest in it is much different now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is hard to tap into the joy of writing when it also is now a career. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like a champagne problem to have like boohoo, cry a river. You get to write books for a living. and You get paid pretty handsomely to do it. So like, you know, it's like, okay, mm. yeah, it's stressful, but it's also. It's hard work. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a dream, but it, it is hard work. Um, but I think also, you know, one of the things I had to sort of navigate, especially with my second book coming off of the success of you should see me in a crown was like, um, I had to make a decision to stop writing towards what I thought people would want from me. And instead I needed to write towards what I wanted to see for myself, the challenge that I wanted to rise to in the, in the book and the plots that I wanted to explore that I hadn't gotten a chance to, and you should see me in a crown. And so, um, it took a lot of drafts of *Rise to the Sun* before I, before I could, before I could really see the forest from the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's just it's it's complicated. It's complicated knowing that you're no longer just writing for you, but you're writing for nameless, faceless critics who are mm-hmm. going to have a lot to say about the book. Which, like, you don't have critics when you only write for yourself and you leave the manuscript on your laptop so
1: yeah and some of those critics like we talked about before are people who may hate your book and say really mean things and and may want to ban it even right or try to silence that voice i think one silver lining around that though is that we can take back our power and you've done that so you open loudmouth books tell me more about the mission of the shop and the space you're creating there Yeah.
0: So Loudmouth Books is Indiana's only banned bookstore. Every book in the store is for buyer about marginalized people. So we specialize in diverse stories and we highlight banned books year round. Um, I think what happens is every October we see, you know, a rise in stories and interest in banned books because it's banned books week. But, that battle continues all the time. And when I saw my books being removed from shelves, the books of my friends and my colleagues and and my mentors being removed from shelves, I knew that I wanted to do something that would ensure that those stories would remain accessible for as long as possible. And part of that is putting them on the shelves at a bookstore because people may not know this, but Barnes and Noble doesn't carry every book in store. They have a really narrow um, scope of the books that they're able to carry and, or interested in carrying, willing to carry um, whatever. And so independent bookstores are really the lifeblood of queer authors and uh, BIPOC authors Mm -hmm. because independent booksellers, make the decisions about what is and is not valuable and does and does not deserve a place on the shelf and there's no big corporate edict coming down telling us what we need to prioritize for the season. Um and so that's been a real joy is being a bookstore where I know and you know the homies know listen Maybe mm. Barnes and Noble is not going to put you on an end cap, but we're going to do a full build-out display in the front of the store where we put your book in the center of it, um, and that has been a real that's been a real joy and it's been really empowering. I would say in the past uh, two and a half ish months of being open,
1: mm-hmm. I've had the chance to stop by your shop, and I do love you have like the shelves that are are almost like um, you have the bookshelves, of course, but then you also have the other shelves where you do have those prominent books displayed kind of above the couches. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of like the right word, like there are shelves where you would typically have like maybe photos or something on there, right? But like you have the books displayed there and I I love that. You also host events too. So you do author events and you do in-convo events there. What other kind of events do you have going on?
0: So truly just before we started this interview I was building out our our programming calendar for the first quarter of next year which I can't believe we're already or I guess when you're listening to this it's already 2024 but um building out our programming for the springtime and so we have a lot of really cool authors coming to visit us which I can't even talk about all of them yet but I'm stoked because people don't often bring. Their tours through Indianapolis. So that's like really cool for us. Um, but we have book clubs, we have literary trivia nights, we have uh book exchanges where you come and trade a book with a stranger and have a conversation with them. Um we have a book fair coming up where kids will be able to come and just like take brand new hardbacks for free. Um of all diverse titles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we just, we have a lot of really cool, fun stuff coming up that I, uh, programming that I, as an author, have been like, man, I, I wish we had, I wish we had that near me. I would love to see that near me.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: now I just get to make it because it's my <laughs> story. whatever I want.
1: Yeah, I love that. Beyond uh, Loudmouth Books, what do you, what are you working on? Do you have anything that you can share yet with our listeners?
0: Yeah, so I have the sequel to my middle grade. Um, My middle grade is called Ellie Ingle Saves Herself. It came out with Disney Hyperion in May of 2023. And the sequel will be out in spring of 2025. And so I'm working on that right now. It's called Brie Boyd is a Legend. And it is about a 13-year-old girl who develops the power of telekinesis and has to navigate being a superhero while also trying to make it to the national spelling bee. Um, and that has been a lot of fun to work on. And, um, I have a co-written YA rom-com coming out with my friend, George M. Johnson called there's always next year. And that will be out in 2025 as well. And it's very gay. It's set on New Year's Day. Two cousins trying to right the wrongs of New Year's Eve and find love. It's so funny and very small town energy. And uh, I'm really excited about that one. So, yeah, we're working on a couple books. And and uh, there's always some, some projects that you can't tell people about that I'm also working on. But yeah. Um, yeah. In the meantime, I'm teaching in the MFA program at Butler University and um, and not sleeping very much.
1: That's pretty <laughs> much <laughs> Because you're also running <laughs> a banned bookstore at the same right. time. Right, and now also running the bookstore. <laughs> yeah. the, you, know, yeah. Yeah. you have you, not
0: a lot going on at the moment. Yeah, you have all
1: kinds of free time. Um, so lastly, the work we do here at The Facing Project is to try to create more understanding and empathy in the world, which is hard to do at times. This season, I'm asking all of my guests the same question, and I'd love to hear your perspective on it, too. How do we create a more empathetic world in a time when it feels like listening and understanding the lives of others has actually decreased?
0: So, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop came up with a theory of windows and mirrors. The point of stories she says, is to offer us mirrors that reflect our experiences back to us and windows that offer insight into experiences other than our own. And I think stories do that, obviously, but so does engaging with your neighbor, Mm -hmm. so does not existing in a vacuum, so does opening yourself up to the potential that you are wrong about something embracing the idea that being wrong doesn't make you a villain, it just makes you a human who is in progress. Mm -hmm. And and so my my hope is that in 2024, all of us will be more willing to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Be wrong. Be wrong about yourself. Be wrong about your neighbor. Be wrong about policy. Be wrong about the things you think are most important. Shift your perspective. Be open to the potential that your perspective is not the only one. And I think that's the only way that we can really start to bridge those gaps between experiences and people.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Leah Johnson, award-winning author, founder, and owner of Loudmouth Books, and an all-around amazing human. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today to join me on The Facing Project.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Learn more about Leah Johnson, including books and events, at byleahjohnson.com. Many thanks once again to Leah Johnson for joining me on today's show. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project, or find us on your favorite podcasting app, or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana. And it's produced by the amazing producer and audio engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. I'm your host, J.R. Jameson. And until next time, I wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others.